Broadway for Sunday, November 26, 2017. My name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today we have Genetessa Fox, Peter Felicia, and Michael Portantier. Peter is a theater journalist and historian with a number of books. His most recent is The Great Parade, which is available everywhere. His columns appear at MTI, Masterworks, Broadway, Broadway Select, and many other places. Good morning, Peter. Good morning. Peter just reminded me that we are just a mere 30 days or so from some Even sort less. of holiday. Some <laughs> sort of holiday. And I, I might point out that uh, The Great Parade is an excellent stocking star. <laughs> I'd love you. Excellent. And, and uh, so, you know, and many, many, many other types of Peter Felicia books can be found. Uh, Janet Tessa Fox has been writing about theater for more than 10 years in numerous publications, including Playbill Magazine, Broadway World, Time Out New York, and HowlRound. She's a voting member of the Drama Desk Awards. Jenna's podcast, Spotlight, can be heard on the Broadway Radio Network. Also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael is a theater reviewer and essayist. He is also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You can see his photography work at followspotphoto.com. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. All right, so let's jump right into the reviews. Uh, Michael, you got down to the, uh, where is it, the Vineyard Theater? Um, yes. The Vineyard Theater to see the world premiere of Harry Clark starring a Billy Crudup. So uh, tell us about this much buzzed about production. Starring the Billy Crudup, yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> this is a very good, intriguing, uh, one-person play by David Kale, written by David Kale, starring Billy Crudup, directed by Lee Silverman. And I think that there's a part of the backstory uh, to this that I find interesting. Billy Crudup first came on the scene in 1995 in the excellent Lincoln Center Theater production of Arcadia. And he created quite a sensation. He was just out of school then. And he, uh, among other things, he did a perfect uh, upper-class British accent in that in that play. Um, and then I remember uh, about a year or so later, uh, Billy was announced for a production of Bus Stop uh, that was going to be playing at Circle in the Square. And one of my colleagues, one of my uh, theater journalist colleagues, said uh, on television, actually, that uh, Billy Crudup will shed his British accent uh, his native British accent to play <laughs> the role of uh, Bo Decker in Bus Stop. And I thought, uh, well, no. I said, I can understand why you thought that because he did sound letter, a syllable perfect in Arcadia as a Brit, but I had already looked up his bio and knew that he wasn't. Uh, but that's how convincing he is when he does a British accent, and not just a British accent, as is proven in Harry Clark. Uh, in this play, Billy uh, has the role of a fellow, and actually, it's funny because he uh, in the in the Who's Who it says Billy Crudup, and then his role is listed as Philip Brugglestein, which is the actual name of the actual person, although it's hardly ever used in the play. Um, he is this Philip guy is some guy from the Midwest, and who Billy plays, and he speaks to the audience and he tells us that um, for whatever reason, at a very young age, he developed uh, the ability to speak in a flawless British accent. And he develops this sort of alter ego of this fellow named Harry Clark, just because he finds it 
fun and more intriguing and a lot more interesting than his humdrum Midwestern day-to-day life to play this Brit. So he, uh, he gradually assumes the character of this Harry Clark, I, I guess, more and more often. And then it gets to the point where he starts really passing him off as this himself off as this fictional person. And, um, I don't want to give too many details, but he, uh, Philip ends up in New York, and one day he just decides to follow some fellow who he sees walking along on Sixth Avenue, and he follows him into the Gap and observes him as he uh, buys some underwear, I believe, Um, and then uh, through a series of um, events, he winds up encountering the same fellow later on, and he pretends to know him. He does that kind of scam thing where that some people do where um, they mention uh, like it's one thing that they know about you and, and they try to convince you that you've met them before uh, through, through other friends and that they know you and they know people who you know. And this is a way that I guess hustlers and people of that sort can work their way into people's lives. So that is what happens. And, um, Philip, Harry, uh, does gradually, not that gradually, work his way into the life of this uh, quite rich uh, upper class fellow. And then we see and hear what happens next and how he how thoroughly he works his way into his life. And there's a lot of, I think, suspense because you um, – it, it's clear that, to, at least to some extent, that Philip is, um, if not med- mentally unbalanced, he's certainly got a lot of issues that might uh, cause him to, in one way or another, really take advantage of this of this fellow who he latches onto. And possibly, you think, I guess you're thinking maybe he might kill him. Uh, so that's something that hangs over much of the play. Uh, but I, so I, I don't want to give away plot, but it's really, uh, there are certain elements of the plot that maybe are somewhat reminiscent of the talented Mr. Ripley and a couple of other, uh, stories, films, plays that we may have seen. But, uh, I think that David Kale did a really good, very original job of providing very original twists to this story. And, um, it'd be hard for me certainly to imagine anyone else but Billy Crudup in it because he is so perfect at doing that, uh, at doing Harry's accent. But he also um, d- plays several other characters with varying accents, including other members of uh, the family of the of well, the fellow that he latches onto and other members of that guy's family, and um, all, including some women, by the way. Um, so he. Uh, and and by the way, he uh, several uh, friends with whom I saw the play agreed that he vocally characterizes these all of these characters so well. Uh, these other characters that you can practically picture them physically. So I think that's really quite an achievement. And uh, the play is only about eighty or eighty-five minutes long, but it is just him. And there's an extraordinary. Um, uh, section. If you see it, please pay attention to this. It's it's basically the first, I would say, at least half hour. Um, Billy Crudup stands in one spot 
without basically moving a muscle. Uh, later on, he d- starts to do some blocking and walks around a bit. But it, it, he, for all intents and purposes, he is stock still for, I would say, at least half an hour. And that cannot be easy. Uh, one of my friends who was sitting much closer said, I saw him clenching and unclenching his toes just as a way to sort of help him keep balance. And uh, I guess not, not have his feet freeze up or whatever but i i've never seen anything like that um and i don't want it to take away um from your you know your attention away from what is being said but if you if you remember and and you do get to see harry clark down at the vineyard notice that section in the beginning because it's quite extraordinary um this is the second really good one person show that I've seen within two weeks. The other one was very different. Um, Latin history for morons written and written by and starring John Leguizamo. Uh, this is a much more, uh, play in uh, much more of a play in terms of the fictional character and being played by Billy Crudup. But I, uh, I, it, I have heard, um, that there is quite a lot of buzz of, around it. So I think that many other people are having as positive reaction to it as I am and the other friends with whom I saw it. So, yeah, this is a, uh, a hot theater ticket right now. And uh, people are wondering if this will be the next transfer for the vineyard. So um, what, were you going to say something? Oh, no, just that we don't see uh, Billy that often on stage. I I believe, uh, let's see, he was in No Man's Land in 2013, 2014, uh, and before that, Waiting for Godot, which was right before that. Uh, uh, Then there was the revival of Arcadia, uh, in which he had played another role. But he, I I mean, he's no stranger to the stage. He does keep coming back, but not as often as as some other people. So it's, I would really definitely take this opportunity. Yeah, it's playing through December 10th down at the Vineyard. We'll have a link to that in the show notes. So, uh, Peter, you got over to the Barrow Group where there's a production of Muswell Hill. Uh, so tell us about Muswell Hill. Yeah, uh, that's a rather uh, tony uh, part of uh, London, Muswell Hill is. And um, I think that uh, there would be a possibility the show might be eligible for a Tony if it moved to Broadway. Well, it would be eligible, of course, but I mean, might get a, a Best Play nomination because it's really quite terrific. Now, it's written by an up-and-coming playwright named Torben Betts. The thing about uh, this play is that he's very much in the style of Alan Akeboard. In other words, many of the situations are funny, but you rarely, if ever, get a capital A, capital J, a joke. He doesn't go for that. He finds humor in uh, just tiny, tiny pieces of things that happen, and he does that spectacularly well. So what's happening here? Well, we're at a dinner party. Now, when you think of a dinner party, you're thinking of people around a a table, um, maybe like um, Madame Armfeldt's dinner party in A Little Night Music. No, what you're seeing here is what's going on in the kitchen. And that's kind of interesting because what you have here is people who don't like to really be at a dinner party and they saunter into the kitchen because, of course, when you're in the kitchen, the stakes are much lower in terms of conversation. Uh, And it's a good refuge for a lot of people. Of course, you do drive uh, the uh, 
person who's running the dinner party, who's doing the cooking crazy because uh, the poor soul cannot get anything done whatsoever um, as well as she could have if indeed they would leave her alone. Of course, she's got troubles of her own, too. The the big problem is um, that Karen, as she's named, uh, is having trouble with her boyfriend, who's a novelist. Um, unfortunately, he's not a published novelist, and unfortunately, he's getting nowhere. And uh, she's been paying the bills, and that's always a tough situation for any couple. But uh, she's being barraged by these various people who come into – and there are issues about sex. Uh, there are issues about uh, theater. Uh, people have opinions about theater and all that. And you really get to see the people. The characters are really beautifully detailed and exposed by things that they say, which, again, are not inherently funny, but you'll find yourself laughing a great deal. Now, there is a problem here, and that is uh, the actual theater itself. What has happened is um, if you've been to the Abington Theater, you're usually sitting facing the stage. But here it's in a U type of configuration, a thrust stage, and the kitchen is awfully long. And as a result, and many people told me this um, on the way out, they couldn't hear everything. Uh, it's problematic because this is, after all, a place that was not built as a theater, so the acoustics are not great. And because it's a long, narrow kitchen, you are going to miss some of the dialogue. And it's always very frustrating when you're in a situation like this, when if you're sitting on the right side of the house, as I was, you suddenly hear people laughing uproariously from the left side of the house. You even see them laughing uproariously because you're facing them. And yet you didn't hear what happened. So, and believe me, there were plenty of times when we on the right side were laughing uproariously and uh, we could see the people on the left side squinting, wondering what we were laughing at. So, so that is a problem. It's not the ideal space for this show. And that's too bad because it really is a terrific, terrific, funny, and uh, exasperating evening in its own sense, too. And it's one of those plays when suddenly the humor stops and it gets extraordinarily serious, extraordinarily serious at the end, extraordinarily so. But when you think of it, this has been set up very, very well, and we can understand why the shootout has to occur. So I can really recommend uh, Muswell Hill, but I can't recommend the space in which it's in. So uh, you mentioned it was the Abington Theater. Uh, interesting, if you, on the Barrow Group's website, it, it does not mention the Abington Theater. It calls it the Barrow Group Main Stage Theater. Has there been a change there? Well, I do know I do know that Abington uh, has had some issues and troubles, so it is very possible that that's a thing of the past. This is at 312 West 36th Street. Let's put it that way. Oh, and let me also say that Colleen Clinton is phenomenal as Karen, just phenomenal. They're all wonderful. They're very, very good, but she really does stand out in this role and does extraordinarily well. And by the way, it's not done on the cheap either. You know, <laughs> you're dealing with a kitchen and cooking. Uh, she makes omelets. <laughs> She doesn't share them with us, but she makes omelets. <laughs> All right, Peter, you also got to see 20th Century Blues uh, at Signature, so tell us about that. Yeah, uh, this is a play by Susan Miller, and I thought it was tremendously effective. It had to be, really, because what you're dealing with here is a bunch of women who get together every year to have their picture taken by one of the group who's a, f a professional photographer. Now, of course, 
this gets far more painful as the years go on. Uh, many of us don't like our pictures taken as we age because we look at our pictures from 10, 20, 30 years ago, and uh, we wonder what happened. <laughs> and so there's a lot of discussion on whether or not there should be uh, a picture taken this year. So uh, they, they also talk a good deal about uh, their, their careers, especially a very effective line because one of them played by Catherine Grody. And isn't it wonderful to see Catherine Grody again? We haven't seen her in a while. And um, she plays a veterinarian. And uh, her cell phone goes off and she hears about a certain um, dog that she's been tending to. And as she's on the phone, she says, oh, yeah, I was afraid of that. Yeah, yeah. And the problem is that um, the dog uh, has a terminal illness. And when she hangs up, she says to the group, uh, you know, the thing about my occupation is that I'm not only a pediatrician, but I'm a gerontologist, which is a good perception because, after all, pets don't live that long. And a veterinarian has to deal with them when they're young and when they're old. So that's just one of the perceptions that um, I found extraordinarily interesting. So, uh, But the main point of the show deals with the fact that as we get older, um, there are other challenges as well, not just health, not just looks. But the fact that a lot of people don't want to know old people, that being old is one of the most terrible things that can happen in America, that youth is everything. I mean, I'm <laughs> I was very um, interested last year at the Super Bowl when Atlanta was doing awfully well at the beginning. And these announcers were saying this young team will not be denied this young team. Well, then they wind up losing. And you realize that young also can mean inexperienced, you know, but um, these women talk a good deal about their experience. But, but does anybody want that experience or do they want youth? So that's what the show's really about. Beautifully directed by Emily Mann, um, <clears throat> who uh, does wonderful work at the McCarter Theater in Princeton. But she, here she is in a rare off-Broadway um, directorial stint and does extraordinarily well. You really do believe that all these women have been friends now and forever. And also, um, as even though they're aging, well, there's another woman in the mix who's one of the women's mothers. And so therefore she's about 20 years older and she's got dementia and she's having problems. She doesn't know where she is half the time. Uh, and they're looking at their future. And in a way, they're very happy where they are now, considering where they will be in 20 years. See, a lot of interesting perceptions in this play. So I do think 20th Century Blues is worth seeing at the Signature Theater on 42nd Street. So uh, I interviewed Susan Miller um, yeah. a few months back on uh, Broadway Radio, and I'll link to that in the show notes. Uh, it was really interesting to talk about the development of the show and the and the previous incarnations that it's gone through. I'm so glad that it's up on its feet and it's being well received. Mm -hmm. uh, Michael, you got over mm. to the en Encompass New Opera Gal uh, New Opera. Uh, they had a gala where they honored Christine Ebersol. So tell us about that. Yes, this was at the beautiful National Arts Club on Gramercy Park South. The Encompass New Opera Theater every year honors someone fabulous. Uh, past honorees uh, have included Barbara Cook, Sheldon Harnick, Charles Strauss, Lee Adams. And this year they honored the wonderful Christine Ebersol. Among those present uh, to perform and or speak in honor of Christine, where both 
uh, the composer and lyricist of Warpaint, Scott Frankel and Michael Corey. Also, Clea Blackhurst, Debbie Gravitt, uh, Howard McGillan, James Snyder, K.T. Sullivan, uh, the aforementioned Sheldon Harnick, uh, William Ivy Long, and Lawrence Yerman. And it really was a great evening. Uh, the uh, Warpaint, um, I did not get to the final performance, but apparently it was quite a performance because that show has a tremendous amount of fans as it should, uh, not only for the show itself, but for the two fabulous leading ladies, Christine Ebersole and Patty Lapone. Uh, Patty, as many of you may have heard, uh, the run had to end early because Patty was having huge problems with her hips and was scheduled to undergo surgery. She apparently was in great pain. So she herself was not present, but she sent a lovely note that was read about Christine. Um, I, I go back almost to the beginning with Christine. I did see her in Camelot uh, on Broadway and I think I've caught her in just about everything uh, since then. She is an incredibly versatile and beautiful performer. Her, her vocal abilities alone are, are just spectacular. She, she can sing in every genre very, very well. Her range is, is, uh, is astounding. Uh, her acting and vocal range. And so I think that, that she was a, um, a great honoree for this group that, which, uh, you know, is involved in opera as well as musical theater presenting evenings of opera as well as musical theater. Um, uh, and it, they, they do have a wonderful, really nice social engaging gala every year at, as I said, the national arts club, uh, a place that you sh you should really try to visit if you haven't. It's right next to the Players Club on Gramercy Park South, so you can uh, maybe kind of take both of them in at once if you get down there. I'm not, I'm not sure of the exact uh, entry uh, situation if you're not a member of either, but I think you know you can probably go in and look around if you arrange it beforehand. So that was a event that I, as I said, I've gone every year for the past several years and was very, very happy to be there again. You know, I, I have to say that um, I discovered Christine Ebersole when she was Judy Kay's understudy and on the 20th mm. century. Oh, wow. um, I had gone to uh, 20th Century quite a few times. I really uh, liked it very much. And so I saw Madeline Kahn, and then I saw when Judy Kay took over. But one night, Judy Kay was out, and there was Christine Eberstole, her understudy, doing it. And frankly, I thought she was the best Lily Garland of the three. And the next day at work, when I had nothing to do, I probably did, but I didn't do it. Um, I wrote <laughs> the only fan letter I've ever written in my life and uh, dropped it off at the St. James Theater. And 20-odd years later, when I was um, writing a feature, for the Star Ledger on the upcoming production of Mame, starring Christine Ebersole, I showed up and said, um, do you remember that letter you got after 20th Century? She said, that was you? I said, it was on yellow paper. Yes, yes, yes. So Christine <laughs> Ebersole has always thought I was awfully bright. and um, But I'm telling you, boy, was she magnificent. And I'm sorry that more people didn't see her as Lily Garland. I can just picture her in that mm -hmm. role. She must have been absolutely fabulous. Mm -hmm. Phenomenal. Oh, and by the way, uh, Sheldon Harnick is heavily involved with Encompass New Opera, and he's been there every year um, that I've been at their galas, and I always try to speak with him because he is a living legend. And yeah. so on this occasion, I went up, and I, and I just – the only thing I could think to ask him was if he was happy with the television uh, – 
version of she loves me in terms of how it was filmed if he thought it was and he said oh yes i thought it was very very well done i was very happy with it so thanks. i would think so especially because there was one uh, done in england many moons ago and uh, that one was heavily abridged uh, it's fun to watch it's beautifully done but a lot of songs are dropped in that british production from i think the 70s or 80s yes peter i agree that british tv version was very well done but there was a lot cut out for time and i was just recently reminded that one of the great might have beens is that there was to have been a film hollywood film version of she loves me with julie andrews and dick van dyke which did not happen because uh well, for a number of reasons, but that was uh, during the period when the movie musical started to get into big trouble again after the tremendous resurgence with uh, Mary Poppins and Sound of Music and those other hits of the of the mid '60s. But uh, that would that would have been something else. But at least we have uh, a, a TV version. I, I had very mixed feelings about the roundabout production, but it is it does preserve the show in its entirety for the most for the most part. So that's a really good thing, and the cast is excellent overall. I would say, mm-hmm. Peter. Um, you got over to Cherry Lane Theater to see Pride and Prejudice. So tell us about Pride and Prejudice. Yeah, um, those who enjoy Pride and Prejudice as a novel or even know the musical version called First Impressions, which I'm amazed nobody has ever done, given that there's been such a resurgence in interest in Jane Austen. Will somebody get on the ball and at least do a Mufti type of presentation of First Impressions? But anyway, back to Kate Hamill's version of Pride and Prejudice that's currently at the uh, Cherry Lane, directed by Amanda Dennert, um, the woman who will always be known as uh, the one who directed to that Trinity Square production of Annie, where at the end of the show, Annie wakes up still in the orphanage. It was all a dream. It never happened. So um, that didn't last very many performances. But anyway, here we are. So the first thing you'll notice, if indeed you know Pride and Prejudice, is that we're only dealing with four daughters. Yep, there's no kitty. Uh, why? Well, probably because the whole thing is done by a, a cast of, I believe, nine, and um, <clears throat> everybody plays a million parts uh, to the point where, indeed, uh, you have John Tufts playing both Mr. Bingley and Mary. So, uh, yeah, there's a lot of gender switching around whenever somebody is needed to be in one place or another. He or she uh, turns into that character. So uh, it's a terrific production, and it's by the Bedlam Theatre Company, which is very well named because there really is a lot of Bedlam going on on stage there. So um, they do take us through the story, and, of course, the big story here is Elizabeth Bennet. Patent Dr. Jane Austen herself, that she, this is who she had in mind herself when she was writing, Elizabeth Bennet, um, who is a fiercely independent woman, which wasn't easy to do back in these long ago days when women was just interested in getting married, especially, especially uh, when you have a mother who thinks of nothing but getting her five daughters married. And uh, she, she wishes she had sons uh, because that would be so much easier um, and, and the wonderful lyric in First Impression, by the way, goes that um, that they had five tries and they had five misses. So anyway, mm-hmm. um, here we are. And um, playing Mrs. Bennett is Nance Williamson, who is tremendous in the role, just tremendous in doing such a wonderful job um, in showing a woman who is just possessed by this need to get her daughters married and 
thinking nothing of it when she says to any of the daughters in front of the others, you know, you're my favorite. Um, <laughs> every daughter gets a chance to hear you're my favorite. And there are the other three daughters, you know, hanging around. And um, she thinks nothing of this. She is so clueless in so many ways, but she is so determined to get these um, women married. Now, <laughs> of course, she herself is married. And, well, that's uh, a big problem for Mr. Bennett. Uh, Chris Thorne plays him beautifully as well. Here's a guy who has learned long ago that um, what are you going to do with this woman? There's nothing you can do. You must just divorce yourself from what's going on. Sit down and read the paper. Uh, by the way, um, yes, a newspaper. And, in fact, it's very clearly the New York Times. So I don't know if we can say that it's updated to the present day because, um, after all, I'm not sure people are reading newspapers anymore, but it, it may be the recent past. But there are plenty of anachronisms here, including the music. It actually starts with the song The Game of Love, uh, made famous many years ago by Wayne Fontana and the Mindbenders. I guess Wayne Fontana himself was not a mindbender or else the group would simply have been called the mindbenders. But anyway, there's a lot of pop music in it here and there, and there's a lot of boogieing in terms of dancing. Yes, there is. So it, that, the anachronism is uh, supposedly part of the fun. It wasn't so much for me, but the audience adored it every time it went into um, any type of anachronistic music, dance, or expression. Um, many of the lines are taken from Jane Austen, yes, of course, including the famous first line that starts the book, but there's a lot lot of contemporary language too so bedlam theater company good to its name that's what they do you know they play around with things they're a little bit shall we say crazy and um they want to be and so uh for two hours plus you should have a, a reasonably good time now i will admit that jane austen purists might feel that this is an abomination that it's a sacrilege to anything that jane austen had ever planned and uh, who knows um jane austen who died extraordinarily young uh, certainly isn't around to see it but um i will tell you that uh, the audience had a rollicking good time during the first act the second act gets a little more serious and um more straightforward but by the time the show ends they're back to fun and games again so so, um, for one, forearmed in terms of uh, your feelings about Pride and Prejudice, I will say this: if you don't know the book, uh, it might be a good idea to find out what's going on beforehand, uh, <laughs> because you might not be able to follow it terribly well. Because it is bedlam up there at the Cherry Lane. I always wonder if the Bedlam Theater Company will do Sweeney Todd. Oh yeah, that would be something. <laughs> right, <laughs> site specific. Where, where do they get their hair? <laughs> exactly yeah, that Sweeney Todd off Broadway is extending again has yeah. uh, has extended again uh, I wonder uh, I, I don't recall if I saw any more new casting or if they're going to stick with their current cast or uh, what's going to happen there but uh, we'll have to check that out that you know that Sweeney Todd it's a, a, a good Christmas present tickets mm -hmm. Sweeney Todd <laughs> All right. Uh, next up, uh, Peter, you saw Indians at the Metropolitan Playhouse. Um, what, this Arthur Coppett play? Tell us about it. 
Well, I'm a big fan of the Metropolitan Playhouse. I think they do very fine work. And what they usually do is pick plays from the turn of the previous century. So we see plays that we never get a chance to see. Um, and ironically enough, that's true here, too, even though Indians was first produced on Broadway in 1969, starring Stacey Keach. But since then, it's really faded away and uh, blessed the Metropolitan Theater Company for bringing it back. Uh, this is a story about Buffalo Bill and his um, experiences with the Indians. It's a very surreal play in many instances, but it is a play that does endeavor to show us exactly how the Indians got, you should pardon the expression, screwed by the white man. Now, this may not strike anybody as new news, and I will admit that um, in the 48 years that have passed since the opening of um, Indians at the Brooks Atkinson Theater, that um, we've heard this many, many times. So it may not strike you as new information, but it's beautifully presented. Beautifully, beautifully, beautifully presented. So I do think it's worth getting down to the Metropolitan Playhouse, which is not an easy place to get to. It's on East 4th Street, um, way um, close to Alphabet City. But, uh, and it's a very tiny theater. And I was very, very surprised when I heard that this was uh, being done because I remember it having a cast of, if not thousands, a lot of people. So, of course, there's a lot of doubling, but um, everybody does extraordinarily well. And getting off stage very, very quickly and coming back as another character uh, in a different costume is not an easy thing to do, of course, uh, and yet they do it. So it's a very vigorous production. I'm very, very proud of the Metropolitan Playhouse once again for giving us a play that nobody has thought about for a while and uh, brings it back to life. So congratulations to them. Great. So we will have a link to the Metropolitan Playhouse production of The Indians in the show notes. It's playing through December 16th, so you still have some time to get down there and check it out. Um, Jenna, so you got a chance to see the movie Hello Again. Uh, yes. And why don't you give us a little review on that? Thank you. So, yes, Hello Again. It's back, finally. <laughs> uh the stage musical ran at Lincoln Center's uh, off-Broadway space in late 93, early 1994. So a whole generation has gone by. And this was Michael John Lacuse's, one of Michael John Lacuse's first major New York City musicals. It really introduced him to a lot of people. And the show follows uh, the basic premise of Schnitzler's La Ronde with daisy chains of lovers. And at the, you know, when Schnitzler first presented La Ronde, it was heavily censored and very heavily, uh, it was scandalous with its very frank discussions of sex and classism. Uh, a gen uh, many, almost a century later, when Lacusa recreated it, he rewrote it so that it was, it covered the entire 20th century, 10 scenes, each of which takes place in a different decade of the 20th century but not in a linear format so that a scene can jump from the 40. Uh, one scene takes place in 1910. The next scene takes place in 1940. And then the next scene is in the 1960s. So it jumps around and the show really lets us see how different generations reacted to sex and sexism and different perceptions of relationships and what relationships could be across different generations to see a scene from 1912 and then jump to the hedonism of the 1970s and have them contrasted with a character to connect them is really brilliantly done. Uh, 
So this movie directed by Tom Gustafson and written by, I'm going to mispronounce this name horribly, please forgive me, uh, Corey Krukeberg. And this movie, like the musical, follows the same daisy chains, uh, but where the musical, uh, the stage version, pushed some boundaries by having two scenes involving gay hookups in the film. Uh, they've used a lot of cross-gender casting that recreates a lot of their relationships and shifts them into a different light. Um, the senator, played by uh, Martha, uh, Martha Plimpton, is now a woman. The role was played by John Dossett in the original off-Broadway production. Uh, the role is now a woman. And Sam Underwood plays Leo Cadia the Whore, played by Donna Murphy in the original off-Broadway run. Uh, Underwood plays the character as a woman in the first scene and as a man in the next one, which beautifully shifts how uh, the dynamics of these relationships, and it makes the sexuality a lot more fluid, and it makes the search for connection and love much more universal. So it's a really beautiful touch that's unique to the film. Um, I feel like I'd be a lot more familiar with these actors if I watched more TV. Uh, a lot of the actors apparently have come from various TV shows, but we do have uh, Rumor Willis, who was uh, who starred for a little time in Chicago on Broadway. Uh, T.R. Knight, who started off on TV but has done several Broadway shows now. He plays the husband. Uh, Rumor Willis plays the young wife. Cheyenne Jackson, who seems to have left Broadway for a while. I hope he comes back soon. He plays the writer. And our diva, Audra McDonald is Sally, the actress, and she gets a whole new song with a beautifully cheesy video to go with it. <laughs> and the scene, the scene is completely different from uh, the original one in the off-Broadway production. It's, uh, it's set in 2002, so this goes beyond the uh, 20th century. And it's hilarious and very poignant at the same time. Her hookup with Cheyenne Jackson is... Uh, the scene, I, I can't say the song is one of Lucas's best, but it's deliberately meant to be a cheesy pop song, and he succeeds admirably in writing a cheesy pop song. And seeing her pull out her best Beyonce is always wonderful. So that's a highlight of the film, is watching Audra McDonald do a cheesy pop music video. <laughs> so <laughs> a lot of fun. Also um, in the cast... Stopped- it- is uh, oh I'm sorry. Also in the cast is Nolan Gerard Funk, who was in that really unfortunate uh, <laughs> revival of Bye Bye Birdie um, that the Roundabout did some oh, years ago. God. It, yes. he's, he's the soldier yes. in this, and it was really good to see him uh, in in better circumstances <laughs> this Absolutely. time. Yes, very much. I mean, and the cast does some beautiful work, and considering each actor plays it's left unclear if they're the same meant to be the same characters that just jump across decades or if the each version of the character is a different person in the different decades i like the surreality of it so uh, it's sort of left up in the air and i kind of like it there uh, yes funk does some very nice work the entire cast works very very well at making their characters uh, only a few of whom are given names uh, more than just their occupation, the whore, the soldier, the nurse. Uh, Rumor Willis gets possibly the show's biggest breakaway hit, Tom, which uh, Carolee Carmelo sang in the original run. And that whole scene is staged completely differently from the way it was done uh, on stage. 
and changes the dynamic beautifully. But she is really doing quite well with her uh, with musical theater, uh, performing first in Chicago, and now here she's got a very nice voice. And I really hope we'll see her do uh, some more musicals because her performance, both of her scenes, are very, very poignant and really beautifully done. Uh, Gustafsson's direction is very dreamy and surreal and I think fits the show very nicely. And the visuals of it, uh, the adaption, the adaptation, sorry, adaption? I really just said that. The adaptation. It's actually a word. Um, it's not it used is. very much, yeah. Oh, Check I feel your dictionary, now. you'll find out you're okay. But nevertheless, adaptation does seem to adaptation. have trumped it. <laughs> anyway, go on. Exactly. Uh, yes, the uh, uh, Corey, I'm, I'm not going to try to butcher that last name again. Corey's uh, screenplay does a very nice job paying homage to the original. And there's just some, it's a really beautiful piece. It's uh, there, uh, Different theaters are showing it, but at different times, so it's kind of hard to catch. But if it comes up, go catch it. It's a lovely evening out. It's only about uh, 90 minutes, uh, maybe a little bit more. The music is beautiful, and you get to see some really talented singers and some great Broadway actors uh, doing what they do best. So definitely worth seeing. Uh, maybe not something for the uh, Thanksgiving weekend family outing, but <laughs> maybe when the kids have gone to bed. <laughs> <laughs> It's amazing it got done. It's amazing. I mean, who would expect this to happen? There are so few exactly. off-Broadway shows that have ever been brought to the screen. Uh, a handful, really. So, and to think that uh, this is something from so many years ago. I mean, it would be different if it was last year's hot off-Broadway hit. But uh, not at all. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I actually haven't caught up with it, but there was Lucky Stiff, too, I think, in the same category. Yes. Uh, whatever the whatever the reasons, whatever the funding source, whatever, uh, it's just fantastic. And, you know, uh, speaking of the adaptation, yeah, I think it's fair to say that the, one of the major issues in adapting musical theater to the screen is the level of reality as opposed mm -hmm. to stylization uh, that seems to present a problem for for some people, depending on the piece. But in this case, I, I think they were already several steps ahead because the stage musical of Hello again is already so stylized mm -hmm. and and so uh non-realistic that uh, you know I, if you just go into it with that feeling i don't think you're going to have any and anyone's going to have any issues as far as well you know why are they singing to each other exactly um, exactly and by the way oh yeah go on sorry no oh, no please i cut you off Oh, just um, I, I don't know if you didn't see it, Jenna, but there I wanted to mention there was a wonderful, excellent transport group production of Hello oh, Again. Yeah, in 2011 with a cast uh, that included Alan Campbell, Blake Daniel, Robert Lindsay, Alexandra Silber, Elizabeth Stanley and Max von Essen. Um, that was really really well done and i was glad to see that and and it remind reminded me how intriguing the piece is from having seen it uh initially at lincoln center yeah it i'm sorry i missed that production and i never got to see the off-broadway run but i as soon as i became interested in lacuse's music i got the cd and listened to it regularly it's just a beautiful score and I think this film does it justice. And like I said, it's very surreal. The surreality of musical theater as a genre really works well for this story. That, sure, the characters are bursting into song. And it works beautifully. Uh, in Tom, 
for once uh, as the young wife begins the song, she's in a dressing robe getting ready for a bath. Mm. And then as she begins talking about seeing Tom in a luncheonette, she's sitting there still in the bathrobe, reliving the experience and walking through the luncheonette in her dressing gown. And it just, it, it's beautiful. It's just so beautifully done and it's lyrical and it's gorgeous. I, I really can't say enough good things about this production. And I'm so glad that an off-Broadway musical from 25 years ago is getting getting new life. I hope it sparks more uh, productions of the show from regional and community theaters. So before we move on out of... Uh... Out of Hello Again, I want to point out that, Jenna, you just had a podcast where you interviewed Michael John LaCusa. Um, yes. Uh, and that, uh, that's in our Broadway Radio feed. I will link to it in the show notes if anybody would like to get back to it and take a listen to it Thank again. You. you can find out who was the original uh, Young Thing. <laughs> Which I did not. Michael, um, you got a chance to see Lady Bird and Follies, both uh, a cinematic uh, productions. So tell us about these. Yeah, there's been a lot for theater fans to see in movie theaters in one way or another lately. Lady Bird um, is a film written and directed by Greta Gerwig. And the basic plot is that Saoirse Ronan plays a high school senior at a Catholic high school in um, Sacramento, I think. And it's about uh, her preparations for where she's going to uh, go to college. She really wants to get out of where she is. Uh, And it's largely about her very uh, contentious love-hate relationship with her mother, played by Laurie Metcalf. Uh, And so Laurie Metcalf and Saoirse Ronan are two reasons uh, alone to see it, two people who who we also know from theater. Um, uh, And the the character's father uh, is played by Tracy Letts. (laughs) So so right away, uh, you, you know, you're getting the idea that this is something that you should see other People in the cast uh, who have done theater to one extent or another are Lucas Hedges, Timothy Chalamet, Beanie Feldstein, uh, or Feldstein, who is still, uh, I believe, Minnie Fay and Hello Dolly, Lois Smith, and Stephen McKinley Henderson. And what's interesting there uh, is that Stephen McKinley Henderson took over the role um, of Torvald in. A Doll's House Part Two, which, of course, the, the original cast was headed by Laurie Metcalf, who won a Tony Award. Uh, so I don't think that they did it together ever. Maybe maybe they overlapped slightly. I, I'm not sure. Uh, but both of those people were were just in the Doll's House uh, Part Two, and now you can see them in Lady Bird. Um, so and, and then aside from the, all of these. Uh, people with theater connections that I just mentioned, part, a large part of the plot is that the character played by Saoirse Ronan is involved. Uh, and by the way, she calls herself Lady Bird. That's, uh, that's the name she's given herself. So that's why, <laughs> hence the title. Uh, but she is uh, involved in uh, theater at her school and their uh, production that they are, are auditioning for. And then uh, they wind up doing is, 
of all things, merrily we roll along. So we get to see parts uh, of numbers from that performed as auditions and or at, in the in the final product of the actual show when they do it. Um, so I, I, I think that um, many of you will if you didn't already know all this, we'll, we'll now be intrigued enough to go check out Lady Bird, which I, I think uh, was also just well done in general, aside from all the, the wonderful theater connections that I mentioned. What songs do they do from Merrily on stage? Well, they do, um, I think they do the titles, some of the title song, and uh-huh. I, think a, a, I think a little bit of Old Friend is in it. Uh-huh. Uh, and then uh, Lucas Hedges sings uh, a, a chunk of Giants in the Sky oh. as his audition. I and see. then there are other little snippets of things that we hear. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, and finally for this morning, uh, Jenna, you saw Indecent on PBS. Uh, so oh, give yeah. us your review on that. This was my family's nice little uh, Thanksgiving sit around the TV show so i guess that says something about my family did you you all have sand it's all for the best (laughs) it is most everybody's watching football games but you're watching indecent right okay absolutely see (laughs) i would call football indecent (laughs) some of it is yeah Uh, quite a lot of it uh so god bless broadway hd and pbs for preserving this play Uh, This is one of the best plays of two different seasons, off-Broadway at the Vineyard and then on-Broadway in the following season, and it had way too short a life in both venues. So there were eight HD cameras that recorded this play just prior to its final Broadway performance at the Court Theater back in August. So if you saw the play, uh, well, if you didn't see the play, and you really should have, uh, the play features Katrina Lank, Mimi Lieber, Max Gordon-Moore, Tom Niels, Stephen Rattazzi, Richard Topol, and Adina Verson, along with musicians Matt Dario, Lisa Gutkin, and Gutkin, sorry, and Aaron Halva. Uh, the play, written by Pulitzer winner Paula Vogel, and was created by Vogel and Rebecca Teichman, who also directs is about the Yiddish play from more than 100 years ago, God of Vengeance, and that play's journey to Broadway in the 1920s after touring Europe successfully and performing off, uh, not off-Broadway as we understood it at the time, but the Yiddish theater, and then slightly uptown in English and finally came to Broadway where it was shut down on opening night because the play was considered indecent. And... It also it featured the first or one of the first gay kisses on Broadway between two women. But by the time the play came to Broadway, it had to be heavily censored. And even but that kiss was still enough to get it shut down. That censorship was not enough to let it run. And it said a lot about the uh, the times and the values, even in the freewheeling 1920s, the roaring 20s. That was still not acceptable in a Broadway house. So the play is is gorgeous, and hopefully everyone who's listening has seen it. If not, turn on PBS so you can see what uh, you can see what Indecent is all about. The recording uh, is very very good. It could be somewhat better. The play relied a lot on words that were projected onto the back wall, so to make sure the TV audience can see the words, the cameras frequently pulled back fairly far in the theater so that the walls were visible and the words are legible. Subtitles would have been so much easier. 
Uh, David Horn directed the recording and he nicely balances close-ups of the actors' faces with full body shots so we can see David Dorfman's very nice choreography. But for several of the scenes, I would have loved to have seen close-ups of the actors' faces and just had subtitles for what they were saying if they were speaking in Yiddish or if we needed to see that, you know, alternating languages, which frequently happens in scenes, the characters will move from language to language in one conversation. And subtitles on the uh, back wall would tell us which language they're speaking in any given moment. It would have been just easier, I think, to have subtitles on the screen rather than suddenly needing to pull all the way back for a translation of whatever they're saying. Um, Another downside to the TV broadcast, and I saw this on PBS, not through Broadway HD, so I don't know if it's the same on the streaming service, is that the final scene of the play involves some censorship that kind of broke the tension of the scene, and it really distracted from the overall emotion. I don't want to say what the censorship was, but it just seemed somewhat ironic, given the play's themes of censorship and the fear of what message theater can convey to an audience to see PBS censoring some shots. Um, and I really thought that uh, PBS has brought has bucked censorship for decades. And it seemed, I don't want to say hypocritical because it's a little bit strong of a word, but it was kind of dis- distracting to see censorship on a uh, PBS show. And that final moment, at least for me, was brought down somewhat by noticing this and wondering why are they doing that? That's silly. Uh, the production is uh, Indecent was a production of Broadway HD in association with 13 productions for WNET. And uh, thank all of them for preserving this play, making sure it's available for future generations. And it really should be seen by as many people as possible. I hope a lot of theater schools and classes in high schools will present this and that the show has a long life beyond uh, the court theater. I hope, like hello, like hello again. I hope this recording sparks future productions of uh, of this play, which is a real masterpiece and deserves to be seen. Yeah, we really are lucky that so many of these things are being preserved in one way or another. Uh, we, we just had. It seems like there have been so many lately. There was present laughter. Uh, was, yes. was that was that PBS also? I think it was. Yes. And uh, yeah, I apologize before I, I, I completely forgot. I think I was supposed to mention, I want to at least mention because you still very much have the opportunity opportunity to see the National Theatre production of Follies. Uh, in, in, several screenings uh, have already taken place and apparently have been, some of them have been sold out. Uh, and there are, I know there are more coming up, uh, encore screenings, I think they're calling them. But they're continuing for... Um, for quite some time, as far as I know, uh, I I don't know if uh, if any of you guys have seen it yet, uh, but it's it's no, I have not. It it got rave reviews. I have mixed feelings about the production, but I think it's so worth seeing the cast. Uh, the, the, leads, the leads are Janie Diaz, Phyllis, Philip Quast is Ben, Imelda Staunton is Sally, uh, Peter Forbes is Buddy, and you know. Um, there there were like 150 decisions and choices made during it that I thought, oh, I don't like that at all. But then there would be something that would happen that would make me see a moment in a completely different revelatory way. And I would think this is this is absolutely worth it. Uh, aside from that, the orchestra sounds 
great and I, it's very well produced uh, in in general, just as a, as a you know as a video production of this of this stage production. So I I I would not hesitate to uh, attend if you can if it's anywhere near you. All right. So uh, before we wrap up for the morning, I want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of broadwayradio.com. There's a subscribe link that we each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be automatically downloaded for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to us in Apple Podcasts. You can listen to us in many ways. One of the ways is the Stitcher app for an iPhone for an Android device, or you can listen to us in many ways. Our Heart Radio plays us, to TuneIn plays us. You can find us at the Google Play Store or anywhere that you listen to find or podcasts. Contact information for Peter, for Jenna, for Michael, and for me can be found at Broadway Radio, as well as links to some of the things we've talked about today, uh, including the uh, Spotlight interview with Michael John and uh, all the different productions that we've talked about today. So, Peter, do you have an answer to last week's challenging trivia question? It was challenging because absolutely nobody got it. Um, I'm looking for, I was looking for two words that sound the same but aren't spelled the same. One is the first name of a two-time Tony winner, and the other is the name of the theater that was the second stop for the show on its way to Broadway. What are the two words? Well, this occurred to me while I was going to the post office on 52nd Street and passed by what used to be cheetah uh, a discotheque which is indeed where hair made its second stop uh on its way to broadway the public theater is where it started it moved to this disco called cheetah long gone before moving to the biltmore theater now the freedman and running a long time and cheetah of course is also the name of our two-time tony winner spelled differently (laughs) c-h-i-t-a as in rivera so maybe it was a little too tough i'm going to give an easier one this week Two Tony-winning musicals from different seasons that nevertheless opened in the same calendar year and ran concurrently for a long time. Each had a character that had the same occupation. This was a featured character in the longer running of the two and the lead in the shorter running musical. What are the shows, the characters' names, and the occupation? All right. So if you have a clue... Of what Peter's asking. <laughs> I don't. Uh, <laughs> be sure to email us at trivia at broadwayradio.com. We'll let you know if you're on the right track. So on behalf of Jenna Tessa Fox, Peter Felicia, and Michael Portantier, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radios this week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 You really think I'm pretty? I want to thank my senator, the philosopher. You're gonna get me a wrinkle. How's the ankle today? What sweeter is what would have been looking for some You're too young for that brilliant smile, the greatest of adventures of my life. You're not a virgin, are you? Oh, God, yeah. Be gentle. I don't know how I get to where I don't know where I'm at. Before this time to think, I need to crash the sink. I don't know how I get to where I don't know where I'm at. There's something wrong with that. There's something wrong with that. 